Today's reading is taken from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. This is the word of the Lord. I'm David Ingle. Um, I am married to Liz with a beautiful daughter, Beatrice. And if you um, are ever at the Nine, you'll probably see them there because we're part of the congregation uh, here at Ashington at 9am. Um, I am a, a clergyman, but my day job these days is running a charity um, making Christian teaching films. And I am excited to dig into this amazing passage with you uh, this morning. Before I do, though, um, can we all just pray? Uh, you might want to close your eyes, just, just sort of let go of anything that's fizzing around in your mind, what, what's happening with lunch, what's happening tomorrow morning, and just focus on the Lord. And Lord, you have promised us that your word will not return to us empty. And Lord, we pray that as we look at your word, you would come by your Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit and meet with and speak to every person here. Come Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, when I turned 13, for my birthday, I was given a, a music player. Uh, it had a, a CD player, double tape deck, detachable speakers. It was awesome. And not only was it awesome, but it was a status symbol. Because at my school, uh, it was boarding school, and we weren't allowed music players unless you became a prefect. And just a couple of weeks earlier, I had become a prefect. So I needed to have a music player just to, like, you know, let everyone know um, that, that I, was, I was in. One slight problem, though, was I didn't have any music to play on my music player. Um, my brother gave me a compilation album to sort of get my eye in, but I thought, I know where I can go and get some great music. The church bookshop. I was that cool. Um, and I went to the church bookshop, and I bought myself a couple of albums, a Matt Redman album, and the, the latest HTB worship, Prepare the Way, it was called. And I loved that album. I listen to it all the time. I'm, I still do. I, I love it. And uh, the title track, Prepare the Way, was a setting to music of this amazing prophecy of Isaiah um, that is reproduced for us here in Luke. And uh, it was pretty 90s, but it, it was, it's still cool. Um, sort of soaring guitar, sort of chords. There was even a trumpet going on in the background. And I used to listen to it again and again and again. And it, it wasn't just that I was a 13-year-old discovering music. Um, I, loved, I loved that it was of God. And I, and I just remember the sense of excitement and anticipation that 
that it, it bubbled up in me about these words and, and that God was on the move and the call for me to prepare my heart to receive him as well. And, and every time, it just fizzed and popped. And sometimes um, when we look back on our teenage selves, we sort of cringe a little bit, like I do, about my status symbol of my music player. But, but sometimes we really get it right. And I think I really got it right with understanding what those words of Isaiah were all about, the excitement, the hope, the anticipation, the expectation of seeing God move. And it's absolutely there. But so often when we read the Bible, we can sort of just skate over these things, or we can read it quite cerebrally and, and academically, and we're just trying to learn facts and figures about what's going on. But but when God speaks to us through the Bible, he does want to speak to our head. Yes, he wants us to understand, but he wants to speak to our hearts as well. And, and I think we're supposed to be excited. There's a sort of fizz and a buzz in the air as we read uh, Isaiah and Luke. And when, when our passage in Luke opens, uh, we've been waiting for 750 years People have been reading these words of Isaiah, getting excited, full of anticipation and hope, just like I was. But as the years gave way to decades and gave way to centuries, the same question is coming up again and again and again. When? When is God going to do this? And then John the Baptist appears in the wilderness and says, Now! And you can almost hear the, the mic drop reverberating 2,000 years later. John is saying what we've longed for, what we've hoped for, it is now beginning to happen. And yet, I think sometimes for us, looking at these events after Jesus, after his death and resurrection, after the pouring out of the Spirit of Pentecost, we can slightly think, yeah, but that was John the Baptist, wasn't it? Why should we be so excited about John the Baptist? Because his job, big job, important, trailblazer for, for Jesus to say Jesus is coming. But now Jesus is coming, why do we, has come. Why do we still need to hear the words of John? Well, you're probably not surprised to hear me say, I think we do, because otherwise I wouldn't be here, would I? Um, but I think the big... The big thing that flags up that actually John's message and preaching has so much to say to us is that every single one of the four Gospels tells us about John the Baptist. And actually that's extraordinarily rare. There are very few moments that appear in all four Gospels, but this is one of them. And not only is, is the sort of the general preaching of John the Baptist uh, reproduced in all of them, but so is this great prophecy that what he came to do was to be a voice in the wilderness declaring, prepare the way of the Lord. All four of them have it. And in John's gospel, actually, we're told that, that John the Baptist is the guy who first said that. He said, this is what I am. But the fact that they all said it writing post the cross, post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, I think is something that we need to hear and then, and then bring a sort of sense of, okay, what's going on here? And how does that impact me? And those are the two questions I want to ask today. What is going on and how does, what difference does that make to me? What's going on and what, what difference does that make to me? 
And the big headline, the, the trumpet blast of what John is trying to say about what, God is, what is going on is that God is coming. God is coming. And, and it's not just what we, we often imagine. It's not God is speaking. Although that would have been very exciting. I was mentioning a couple of weeks ago that when there were little fizz pops of prophecy for the first time in centuries around Jesus' birth, that's an exciting moment. Well, with John the Baptist, it's like the, the volume is turned up on that. He's described in the, the sort of descriptions of Old Testament prophets. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Jeremiah, whoever. It comes a hundred times, that slightly weird phrase in the Old Testament. And it's reproduced here. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. It, it sort of speaks of not just that God's spoken through him like he did at the time of Jesus' birth, but, but that he, he is the man of God, the prophet, like those great uh, figures of old. And suddenly, the, the, whole, the whole region is flocking out to hear this man speak. And everybody else is thinking God's speaking. Or they're thinking, God's finally doing something. And isn't that exciting? But no, it's not quite enough. What John is saying is bigger than that. Not just that God is doing something, but that God himself is coming. And for us, looking back, it is obviously different, but even more exciting, God has come. And that is John's message. He, he's got an extraordinarily pointing away from him uh, ministry. In some ways, all of us who are disciples of Jesus in ministry, whether it's in preaching or anything else, are supposed to say, not look at me, but look at him. But for John, it was particularly the case. He was always stepping out the way and saying, no, no, focus on the one who's going to come. And he says that his ministry is the voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord is coming, or for us, the Lord has come. But in English, and it is the same in Greek, that word Lord is a little ambiguous. We use the same word to talk about God, or someone important or not so important. Alan Sugar, he's a Lord. Are we talking about God here, or are we talking about Lord Sugar? Well, if we go back to Isaiah, the answer becomes clear. In an English Bible, you might notice in, in the, the Old Testament, you often see the Lord written in capital letters. And that always happens when the word in the Hebrew is the name of God, Yahweh. And in Isaiah 40, that is the word we read. The Lord is Yahweh. This is the, the name of God himself. In some ways, it's bigger than saying God, because God, well, lots of people referred to lots of different gods, but Yahweh was the God who was revealed to Israel. Yahweh was how Israel were allowed to talk to him. It spoke of their relationship with him, of his covenant of grace and mercy and the call, all, all the rest of it. Yahweh is the Lord. And when John the Baptist declares a voice of one in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, all his original hearers and all Luke's original audience would have known that passage in Isaiah and known that when he says the Lord he means Yahweh and then when just a few verses later you'll have to come back for the next couple of weeks he says Jesus 
Jesus is the one I'm talking about. He is saying Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. It's actually the great declaration of faith uh, in the letters of the New Testament. Jesus is the Lord. And what they were saying, what we are saying, what John was saying is nothing short of Jesus is God. And sometimes people sort of try and skirt around that and they say, oh, maybe the New Testament doesn't quite say that. Or the, the, the first Christians, they, they didn't think Jesus was God. Well, before Jesus has even got going, before his ministry has even started, John has declared who he is. And a little bit of what that means. So what is the big message? God is here. I think it's important that God is here, though. And one of the, the features of Luke's gospel that we've already seen is how rooted in history it is. And it is important that the God who is showing up it isn't some kind of myth or legend. This isn't some story that sort of once upon a time. This is something that you can place in the where and when of human history. And that's uh, the reason why John, one of the big reasons why John uh, includes this list of, of characters that we get at the start of the passage. They're all the big players in local and global, or the, the ancient world, well, not the whole world, but anyway, the local and sort of world as they knew it, history. You can, you can go and look them all up on Wikipedia. They're all absolutely horrible individuals. We'll come to that in, in, in a moment. <laughs> um, but, but we know all about them. And this was how you sort of said, this is where I'm talking about and this is when I'm talking about. Because in, in the ancient world, they, they, didn't, they didn't use sort of number dates like we do. They, they didn't realize that this was 26 AD. Probably was 26 AD. If you want to know more about the dating, you're a bit of a geek, come and talk to me afterwards. But they didn't realize it was 26 AD until a few hundred years later when a monk worked out our modern uh, dating system and told us all, oh, by the way, that was 26 AD. And if they were talking about it, they'd talk about it within, in the terms of the sort of great figures and the, the rulers and leaders of the time. They'd say something like, oh yeah, that was the 15th year of the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, which is what we get here. So that, that roots it in time, that's, that's like, um, you know, the date. And then also by, by telling us sort of the key figures in the local area, we, we're kind of rooted in the context of the people of God and the people of Israel. So it's like when you watch a sort of historical drama um, uh, at the cinema, and at the start of it, it sort of flashes up, England, 1328. And then you see a sort of horse galloping across the field. Um, and you think, oh, historical drama. That, that's what he's doing. And, and, and this, this matters because, well, so many other faiths are, are based on the legends, the stories of gods which are sort of divorced from kind of time and reality. They're more sort of myths and, and things to sort of get us thinking beyond the world. So many of the great philosophies of the world are all about kind of ideas and thoughts and you're, you're escaping from the difficulties and problems of the here and now by going off into the realms of thinking. So many of the ways in which this generation, our age works, is by looking within yourself. What does your heart say? Look within yourself and you'll find everything that you need. But the problem is, we never do. The, the problem is that we need God to be here because only if God breaks into this world 
can we really have a hope in the midst of the darkness? And that leads me to the second point. What, what difference does this make to us? What does this mean for me? Because John's declaration is that in Jesus, the Lord is coming. And he's coming to a world which, newsflash, is broken. There's so much wrong with the world. You, I mean, I could list it all, but you, you know it. And it's not just wrong with the, the world out there and the stuff that we see on the news. There's so much wrong with each of our lives. The, the stresses and strains that we struggle with. The, 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 the difficulties at, at work or in relationships. How am I going to pay the bills next month? We, we all know the frustrations and the struggles of life. And myths and legends don't cut it. And philosophies are fun for a time, but they don't seem to make much difference. And when somebody says, look within you, you've got everything you need, my answer is, I really don't. It doesn't work. In fact, I don't know if you've ever sort of seen this sort of arc that you so often see over the course of a lifetime. You, you see people in their, their youth, their sort of teenage years, and their 20s, full of idealism and excitement and hope that they can change the world. We can stop the climate crisis. We can make the world a better place. We can be more equal. We can be more just. And they go at it with, with hope and, and belief. But then as the decades wear on, there's a sort of biting cynicism that begins to sort of creep in and crowd that out because they believed, they hoped, and they, they tried, and the world still broke. And it's not all fixed because they didn't have everything they needed within themselves. And, and the, the Jews of, of Jesus' time and, and the, the Gentiles to whom Luke is also saying all this, they, they were all too well aware of this. In fact, it hits you in the face when you read this in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Why on earth is a book in the Bible uh, which is talking about something that God is doing in the midst of his people Israel, starting with Rome? Because Rome has dominated the people of Israel. And this Tiberius Caesar, I mean, he was a horrible, horrible man. I, I, you know, not, not fit for talking about in church. Really. And then the other characters who come, these tetrarchs, and they, they, they were pretty rubbish as well. I mean, one of them, we're not going to get too far forward in the story before Herod kills John the Baptist. You know, not a nice man. Pontius Pilate, he, he wasn't too great either. Even the fact that we've got two high priests mentioned is a big sign something is wrong because it's a lifetime appointment. And there's only meant to be one of them. The world is, is broken. They know the world is broken, and yet we can't fix it. We can't, you can't, I can't, but God can. And the declaration of John is that God can, and he's about to. Because God is going to show up in the midst of this world. And then we have this beautifully poetic declaration of every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. I mean, wow. I mean, and even though I don't think we're meant to imagine that this is going to happen in a literal sense, it, it sort of tells us the order of magnitude. Of, of, of what God can do. You know, he can just remake the physical landscape like that. That's what it means when God shows up. And yet, um, the, 
the sort of the way in which this is presented is starting off in sort of the, the physical landscape. But, but actually, John's message is about people. God is showing up, and it's going to sort things out for people. Because the next line is, and all people will see God's salvation. That's interesting. Luke has actually done something a bit different there. Because that's not the next line in Isaiah. If you go back to Isaiah 40, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, is what you'll find there. But, but Luke sort of sums up the whole of the rest of the chapter of Isaiah 40. In fact, you could say the whole of the rest of the book, it speaks of how God is going to intervene to bring about salvation for all people. And you, you are part of that all people. There's a sort of reaching through not just space, but time. This salvation is as much a message to you and I as it was to John's original audience. And what God is coming to do, the, 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 the Lord who is on his way, is not coming to sort of be a triumphant conqueror and sit atop us all like Tiberius Caesar does. He's coming to rescue us. He's coming to save us. He's coming to make the world right once more. But only he can do it. Now, what, what that looks like, well, you've got to read the rest of the book. You've got three more years of sermons on Luke to, to hear. Because, well, I was going to say, because it'll take that long to, to actually see the fullness of this salvation. I mean, it'll take the rest of your life. But, but it's a wonderful thing. And it, it doesn't look like they're hoping it's going to look like. I mean, all they're really interested in is that Tiberius Caesar gets knocked out. And that doesn't happen. <laughs> so um, we, we sort of already thinking, okay, it's maybe not going to happen quite as we might want it to happen. And one of the things that we discover is that although, again and again, we read that phrase, the light shines in the darkness about Jesus. Although God uh, appears and brings about our salvation through his life, death, and resurrection, he doesn't get rid of the darkness at this point. And the light and the darkness, they coexist in this world in which we live. And they will continue to do so until Jesus returns, when the darkness will flee. And there will be only light. But for now, we have both together. But the declaration that um, John and Luke make, the, 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 the explanation of what Jesus is doing, or is going to come and do, that he is God in our midst shows us that now we have something that we can put our hope in. And we can turn to him. And that's, that's what actually is the heartbeat of John's preaching. That we need to turn to God. To turn back to God. He is described as preaching a baptism of repentance the forgiveness of sins. And at this point, we, we need to realize that there's a, a jarring nature to this passage. Because God shows up, God is going to make the valleys and the, the, the sort of the mountains flat. He's going to show his salvation to all people. But he's not going to do it as we expect or actually even as we usually and I think this is another reason why we have this sort of list of um, losers at the start of our passage. 
I mean, I say they're a list of losers, but they are the great and the good and the powerful of the world in which these people live. And normally when we look for salvation, we look for salvation in the halls of the powerful. We go to the kings and the emperors, or in our day, the presidents and the prime ministers and the UN secretary generals. And we hope that it's through the, the powerful of the world that things can be fixed. And yet the powerful of the world barely even noticed that Jesus existed. If you go to sort of other ancient texts, you'll, you'll find a line about John, barely even a line about Jesus. He's only mentioned when his, his, his followers are mentioned. There, there doesn't seem to be much awareness of these events in the halls of the great and the powerful. And yet this is what God is doing. And so the world is fizzing along as it normally does and the emperor's over off in Rome and the tetrarchs are doing their things in their palace. And the word of God comes to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Why does God always show up in the wilderness? There's a lot of wilderness in the Bible. And actually probably in many of our testimonies as well. And the reason why is because in the wilderness, all that other stuff which I've already mentioned that we put our hope in instead is taken away. In the wilderness, we can't hope for anything else. In the wilderness, there's just the voice crying out, God's on his way. And I want to suggest to you that a key part of, of repentance is letting go, not just of, of the wrong, but of everything else that we look to. And repentance, it's a beautiful thing in the Bible. It's got a really bad rap everywhere else. And I think that the reason is because nobody wants to do it. But if you do, well, it is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's always positive in the Bible. It's never repent and feel rubbish about yourself. It's always repent and be forgiven. Repent and be restored. Repent and be brought back to God. Repent and receive the forgiveness of sins. I don't know about you, but I can't tell you how many times when I've messed things up and been rubbish, I've just the sweetness of knowing God's grace and God's forgiveness. But I think when, when John calls us to repent, he's not just talking about finding the odd individual sin. He's not trying to say to, to them and, and then sort of down the ages to, to, to us, um, were you nasty to your wife this morning? Or did you shout at your kids? It, it, it's not just that. It's bigger than that. The, the, the original word back in the Old Testament that is often translated repent is actually just turn around. It just means turn around. And repentance is turning around from something else to God. And the something else is not just wickedness. It's anything else that we choose to put our trust in. And, and we, like the, the Jews of John's day, so easily put our hope and trust in other things. In fact, in some ways, it's worth noting that, that he's preaching to the people of Israel. These are the people of God, probably in some ways in the most sort of religiously zealous period in their history. You know, this is the church he's speaking to, in other words. This isn't, you know, 
They out there, they all need to repent, but you're lovely. I'm sorry, guys. Repent! <laughs> that, that's what he's saying. He's saying to repent even to those who've already sort of tried to live their ways, life, the ways of God. And all of us are, are pulled back to the ways of the world. All, all of us are tempted to seek salvation in something else. It'll be different for each of us. For some of you, it'll be money. You'll be thinking, money, that's what's going to make my life work. That's, that's what's going to keep my children safe. That's what's going to keep a roof over our head. And, and, and that's what I can use to make a difference in the world. And you think, right, money. And so you go for money. For others, it'll be power and influence. I, I want to become prime minister so I can fix everything that's gone wrong. For, for others, it'll be relationships. It'll be family. It's, life's all about family. It's about the people that you love. It's about leaving a legacy in those who remember and love you. And, and I can carry on. And all of those things I've mentioned are or can be wonderful. But they're not God. You find if you put all your hope in your family, they can't bear it. You know, no, no wife is quite wonderful enough to fill the role of God. No child is ever quite perfect enough to fill the role of God. They'll let you down, but God will not. And so we're not called to sort of, you know, if you're married here, stay married. Um, you know, please don't miss me on that. But we're called to turn away from putting our hope in anything and to turn back to God. And it is in that, that we find God's salvation. And it's actually that we're told elsewhere in the New Testament that is the reason why Jesus didn't just come and just dispel all the darkness because he wanted to give us a chance to completely follow Jesus that we might be saved. Because of course if Jesus had appeared the first time and just judged the world that would have been a disaster for everyone. But instead he comes to save the world and it's only the next time that he comes to bring And so John's message is repent, ready for God to come. It's a little bit different for us because God's already here. But I think the same call is there for you and I. And in that repentance, though, in that turning back to God, shedding the sin that so easily entangles, as it's put elsewhere, in doing that, we will find not only the forgiveness of sins, but we, we allow God to come into our lives. We prepare the way for him in our hearts as well as in the world. And we will find that that is the light we've been longing for all these many, many years. And so, friends, I want to ask you to do that. To repent. Repent! But it'll be wonderful if you do. So would you stand and join me as we do repent? You may just want to close your eyes or hold your hands out, stand, kneel, however you focus on God and just in your heart say, God, I want to come to you. God, I want to come to you.
And I hope that probably each of us felt that God was stirring something in us as I was speaking. I wonder whether there's some people here and you've, you've never fully got the it's God and it's everything. That what we're gathering here to celebrate is not a nice way of doing life, but God giving you himself as his answer. And if that's, if that's you, just say, yes, please, in your heart now. And for others, maybe we've done that. Most of us probably have done that in the past, maybe many times, maybe again today. But, but God is putting his finger on something in your life that you're still putting hope on that you shouldn't be. And Lord, I, I want to pray that you show all of us the things we need to repent and turn away from. So come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. What the devil loves to do is to tell you that you're rubbish at this point and leave you there. But what God wants you to do is to repent and let go of it. And some of you might have been to sort of more liturgical services. There's something that they sometimes do where when the, the creed, which is the sort of declaration of belief, is said, everyone turns to face the front. And I, I, some people think that the reason for that is that in the early days of the church, they'd actually turn and face the back. And then they would turn around to face the front and declare their belief in God as a way of repenting, of turning, like we've been talking about. And I want to ask you to do that. Could you all just turn and face the back of church for a moment? And I want you just to look at that, that window behind you. And I want you to think of the things that you have been, that God has been bringing to your mind that you need to let go of. And I want you to sort of almost symbolically put them on that window now. Put them on that window. And then when I say, I want you to turn around, face the front, and say, I turn to Jesus, or I turn to Jesus again. So just be thinking of that thing that you want to let go of. Some of you, you may, you may not want to let go, but you know God wants you to. And I pray, Lord, that if that is the case, we would have your power to release it. So let's put it on the windowsill and then let's all together, let's turn and say, I turn to Jesus. I turn to Jesus. And then I just want to wait in his presence. I just, I feel like the Lord wants some of you to experience afresh the sweetness of the God who turned up. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. I feel there might be people here, probably are, all of us, 
and you're a little bit worried about what will happen if you let go of those other things. And I feel the Lord saying, I move mountains. I flatten them. Trust me. But that's not a heavy word. It's not, trust me, you idiot. It's, trust me, my love. Trust me. You can cast your burdens onto Jesus. So, so trust him in prayer. Just now, whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're finding it difficult to let go of, just say in the heart, in your heart, Jesus, help me with this. Jesus, hold me. Jesus, come. Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. This is, I feel also a consciousness that there's, there's a lot of darkness out there that we want God to shine his light into. And, and I, I want to ask you just to let that all out in prayer for a moment to God. Uh, you can, I, I was going to suggest doing it in silence, but you can shout if you want to. Shout it, it's all good. Um, but just whatever upsets you about the world, but, but it could equally be the struggles in your own life. And, and by struggles there, I, I don't mean the sin struggles. I mean just the ways in which life is hard. And just let it all out to God and say, y- you're the answer, are you? Well, help. So pray now.